You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. All right, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I'm uh, grateful to have this opportunity with you today. Thanks for being here. We're starting our new 10-week series called Shadows, uh, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. So go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, it's in your Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in the seat in front of you there, underneath the seat in front of you. Um, If you don't have one, you can take that one, uh, write your name in the front, keep it, read it the rest of your life. Um, It'll be a beautiful thing. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, as we begin, I want to start first with offering two different perspectives um, in reading and understanding the Old Testament. Um, the Bible is written with a grand narrative story flow in mind. Um, it's written with a trajectory, if you will, um, where it falls into one, every part of the Bible falls into at least one of four different uh, segments of this grand narrative. It's creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. So all of Scripture is written with this flow. Uh, And all of scripture will fit in at least one of these four segments from Genesis through Revelation. It's one seamless book that's written all about God's plan uh, to rescue his people, his children, back to himself. And so what this means is that even in the Old Testament, we get glimpses and pictures and types and tastes of the Redeemer who will be sent to make all things right again, to make everything bad and sad untrue, uh, to set things the way they're supposed to be before sin entered everything. So even this, the Old Testament, is about Jesus Christ. So as we begin, I want us to understand two main ways of viewing and reading the Bible, two different perspectives in how we approach Scripture. The first is uh, the Bible is my roadmap for life. The Bible is the roadmap for my life. That's a perspective in how you handle the Bible. And I believe the heart behind this is often uh, genuine. It's often sincere. It comes from a good place. But what this means, or at least implies, is that the Bible is primarily about you, if it's your roadmap. Like the Bible is where you go to look for like, when you don't know what to do, don't know where to go, don't know how to handle a certain situation, you, you get this roadmap out and you find where you are and then you follow your way out. And anything that gets you to the Bible, I would consider a good thing. Um, but there's, I believe, a better way to go about it. I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. There's just a better way to do it and you got to be careful. You see, ultimately, the Bible isn't about you. The Bible isn't ultimately about me. Ultimately, the Bible is about how God, through his son, Jesus Christ, reconciles all things to himself. It's ultimately about how God reconciles and restores us back into relationship with our creator God, our heavenly father. Reading the Bible as merely your roadmap, I think if you play it out, it can often lead us into unnecessary heartache, despair, frustration, and disappointment. For instance, when we see the Bible as our roadmap, um, we tend to read ourselves into the stories as the hero. 
whatever story we come across, we write ourselves in as the good guy. So Adam and Eve had a, had a bunch of kids. A couple of the boys, Cain and Abel, right? Rarely do we read ourselves as Cain, who kills his brother for doing things the right way, right? We often would be like, well, I want to be like Abel, who offers the right sacrifice and gets persecuted for it, right? Um, the story of Noah, he hears from God, he obeys God, he builds an ark. We don't read ourselves as those being like, you're an idiot, Noah. Why are you building an ark, Noah? You're dumb. We're not like, oh, that's me in the story, when it's much more accurate to read us as that person than Noah. And that's where we're getting. But we also take, for instance, Daniel in the lion's den. He's ridiculed for his obedience. He's tossed through persecution into the lion's den. And we want to read ourselves as Daniel, who does things the right way, endures affliction and persecution, and is rescued from the lion's den because of our faith. You see, this isn't the central purpose for these stories that have been given to us in the Old Testament. These stories have been carefully passed down to us, not for us to point within and point to us. They've been carefully passed down to us in order to point us and guide us to something greater than us, something bigger than who we are, pointing upward and outward from where we are and from who we are, not inward and downward in our thinking. And so I encourage you to read the Bible for something big and be careful when your reading of the Bible is too small. If you think about it, reading the Bible this way as our roadmap can also leave us confused because we try to do what these Old Testament characters did, and yet when we fail, we beat ourselves up for not doing it the right way or not trying hard enough. We try to figure out where did we compromise that Daniel didn't compromise? Where did we compromise when uh, Abel didn't compromise? Like, How did we do it differently? Where was it that we messed up because we didn't get rescued out of the lion's den? Like... What am I doing wrong? And we, we tend to think and pray like, God, make me more like Daniel. Make me more like Abel. Make me more like David. Make me more like Noah. But I think this is missing the point, at least the main point. You see, the stories in the Bible aren't for us to find heroes to imitate. The stories that we have, particularly in the Old Testament, are meant to foreshadow the true and better hero. Like, to point to the one who lived perfectly as us, who suffered for us in our place. They're to point towards the Savior, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Restorer of all things, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus the Lord. And this is the other way of viewing and reading the Bible, is finding Jesus as the truer and better Noah, David, Abel, and so forth. So part of, us, part of us working through these last 10 weeks, these next 10 weeks here in the Old Testament is to help guide us and teach us how to read the Bible this way, like through the redemptive history, redemptive historical lens. And so together, we're going to look back through some perhaps very, very familiar stories, and hopefully you'll discover where the true hero is and, and who that true hero is. The purpose of our time together over these next 10 weeks is to help raise our affections and appreciation and admiration for Jesus Christ, to raise those affections to the highest levels possible. 
This happens to people today. Like when I find these stories in the Old Testament and point to the greater, like I feel like, like some excitement in me. Like it's, it's fun when Christ is the key to unlocking the Old Testament stories. It's a wonderful thing. And this actually happened to people in the Bible when they found Christ in the Old Testament. They even talk about how it burned within them as they were learning Christ in the Old Testament. So Christ died, he was buried. Three days later, he arose. For 40 days, he talked to others and, and he taught and walked with his disciples and apostles as he was building his church before he ascended, right? And so in these 40 days, um, he took an opportunity to walk, walk along this road to Emmaus with a couple disciples. And this is recorded in Luke chapter 24. And so this is after the resurrection. He's talking to two disciples, and they were discussing the death of Jesus, how they could not believe that Jesus had died. They were unaware of the resurrection and the hope that's in Christ. And Jesus kind of cloaks himself from them seeing who he really is, is walking along saying, what are y'all talking about? Like, who died? And their response was to the point, like, are you the only moron in the Middle East that hasn't heard about Jesus dying on the cross? Like, we thought he was the Messiah, and we were wrong. And then in verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures which they didn't have the New Testament at this time. They're speak, he's speaking of the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did our hearts not burn? And then Jesus said, these are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, talking about the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that's what I hope happens with us, is that the Lord would open our minds to who he is in the Old Testament, open the scriptures to us, cause our hearts to burn within us. And us identify that as worship, that wow and that awe feeling that we experience as we find Christ in the Old Testament. So with all this sort of setting our perspectives and ground rules in a way for our series, let's jump in to week one of 10 as we focus on David and Goliath. Okay, so pretty, pretty familiar, pretty familiar with this story. Well, there's two armies, the Philistines and the Israelites. Okay, if you're new to the ball game, Philistines are bad guys. Israelites are good guys, so to speak. Okay. And they're facing off against one another. The battle lines have been drawn and there's a valley in between them. Okay. And so in these days, people would send a single man to fight in the valley. So each one would send a representative to fight on behalf of the country. Uh, so look in verse three of 1 Samuel 17. And the Philistines, this constant thorn in their side to the Israelites, constant terror to the Israelites, the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And verse four, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion or a representative um, or an intercessor is another term there named Goliath of Gath. 
his height was six cubits and a span. He was around eight six to nine six, like feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed, his upper torso was armed with a coat of mail. That's layers of animal skin, layers of metals. It was his armor, front and back, a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was more than 100 pounds. This is just what he wore to fight, okay? 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had, a bron- he had bronze armor on his legs. That's why we know the coat of mail is just his upper torso, because he also had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze, I love the word they use here, slung between his shoulders. This guy's jacked, okay? He's a massive man, and he's carrying all sorts of armor and heavy stuff. So he's got to be strong to be able to throw and use these, these weapons that he has. The shaft of his spear that he carried was like a weaver's beam, like a yoke that goes around the neck of an ox, right? That was like the shaft of his, of his spear. And the spear's head weighed 15 pounds, 600 shekels of iron. And he would throw that at somebody. Like if you took a 15-pound dumbbell, you're probably not throwing it too far, especially overhanded, right? Homeboy was a massive man, all right? And then as if he needed it, his shield bearer went before him, right? In verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and aren't you servants of King Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Choose a man for yourselves, let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me, and if he's able to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, you'll be our servants and you will serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy, I curse, I damn the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When King Saul in verse 11, who would be the logical fighter, by the way, because he stood head and shoulder taller than anybody in Israel, right? So he would be the logical guy to send forward, but he's not interested in fighting Goliath. So when King Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were filled with terror. They were dismayed. They were discouraged, disheartened. They were broken to their core and they were terrorized. They were greatly afraid. So already they're defeated. When you get fear in your opponent, when they're already like scared to death, like it's, it's all but over. Now something interesting in the previous chapter in 1 Samuel 16 in verse 14, it says that the spirit of God in a unique way left Saul, King Saul, and it says this, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. So let's keep that in mind. David's not alone in this story. He's fueled by the power of God, okay? Now, verse 12, David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse's his dad. Jesse had eight sons. In the days of King Saul, the man was already old. Jesse was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had already followed King Saul into battle, And the names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and then Abinadav, and then the third, Shema. David was the youngest of the eight. The three eldest followed Saul, but David would go back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward, took his stand, morning 
and evening, 80 times, twice a day for 40 days, 40 days of terror, 40 days of mocking, 40 days of judgment, 40 days of shame, culminating fear, culminating anxiety. The humiliation begins to build. The exhaustion sets in like no one is brave enough to go stand before this guy and shut him up. We have nobody that's willing to go do this. For 40 days, the enemy, the Philistines, approached the home turf of the Israelites. They were in their land that was given to them and promised to them by God as his children. And they're taking over this just using voices at this point. We're defeated by his voice. Shame, heaping guilt, growing despair, hopelessness setting in. I mean, it's inevitable. We're going to be killed or be their slaves. That's, that's what's going to happen. They're becoming resolved to this reality. I mean, we've, we need somebody to deliver us. We need somebody to stand against this guy and his taunting and his mocking, but we've got nobody. There's an invader into the children of God, and he's got to be conquered but how? We have nothing. Verse 17, Jesse said to, his, to David, his son, here, I want you to take this to your brothers. It's an ephah of this parched grain and also 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the, to the camp to your brothers. And also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well, see if they're doing okay and bring some token from them for me, like proof that they're okay, something sentimental. I just want something to have of them. And now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David arose early in the morning. He left the sheep with the keeper. He was responsible. And he took provisions and he went and as Jesse commanded. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel... And the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. Here's a showdown. And David left the things in charge with the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Verse 23. And as he talked with them, behold, the representative, the champion, the Philistine of Goth, Goliath by name. He came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. It's different than before. Relentless intimidation. Goliath wouldn't quit. But this time, the words of Goliath were heard by David. He was aware firsthand. He was present. He knew what was going on. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, when they saw Goliath, they fled from him and were much afraid. No hope. Every person who got close to Goliath would wet their pants and turn away and run in absolute fear. No one was brave enough to stand before this guy. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy and curse Israel. But you know, the king is going to enrich the man who kills him with great riches and even give him his daughter as a bride and make his father's house free, tax-free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, now what's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of God's people? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy and damn the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? And the people answered in the same way, this is what you're going to get if you kill him. And then verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard David talking to the other men. Now, Eliab 
his anger was kindled against David. He was like, why have you come down here? This is kind of, this is an older brother sort of thing to say, right? Like, what are you, what are you doing? And by the way, who have you left in charge of your few sheep that you do? Like your shepherding stuff, how cute that is. Like, who have you left in charge of this stuff? Why are you even here? Man, I know the presumption of your heart. I know the evil that's in your heart. I know why you're down here. You just want to be one of the big boys. You're just jealous. You're just interested. You're just curious. You just come down to seal a bit of this battle. Belittling what David does. Those few sheep. Which we'll find out in just a moment what part of that keeping of sheep required of David. It wasn't little. David said, what have I done now? That's the youngest thing to say, right? What have I done now? I've just asked a question. I just spoke a word like, golly, man, all uptight. So he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. But when the words that, were, that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. Maybe they would tell Saul so that he would get David out of here, get this little boy out of here. Or maybe he's like, hey, if he's dumb enough to go fight him, let's just see what happens. All right. They, maybe they picked up a little bit of courage in his tone, which they haven't heard of anybody in Israel for a long time. If he's crazy enough to do it, we're crazy enough to watch. In verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant, I, will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You're just a youth. And he's been like a grown man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, all right, has kept sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and they took a lamb from the flock that I was responsible for, I went after him. I struck him down. I delivered my lamb out of his mouth. And if he rose up again against me, I called him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. There's a principle at play here. Even if I die, I can't sit idly by and let this guy talk about God like this. Not on our turf. This gives perspective on the responsibilities of what it meant to keep a few sheep. Much more than Eliab was wanting to acknowledge. He was just jealous of his courage. But at least this speaks to the commitment that David had in protecting the flock that he was accountable for. He was a man of principle. Verse 37, David said, the Lord delivered who delivered me. He knows that it wasn't him that delivered himself from the lion. He knew that it was the Lord. It was something bigger than simply David. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head, put a coat of mail on him, and David strapped the, Saul's sword over his armor and tried to go in vain. They haven't, haven't been tested. He hasn't trained in these things. He's not used to this stuff. And David said to Saul, I can't go with these. I haven't trained in them. So David, he takes them off and he took his staff and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch with his sling in his hand and he approached the Philistine. 
David is personifying what we read about in Zechariah 4, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. David wore no armor. He had no defensive protection. He didn't need to defend. David knew he was on the offense. The Lord is going to do this. The Lord is going to do that. David's hope was in the Lord, not his personal ability, not his defensive protection. He was going in the power of the Lord. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. He made fun. He despised him for he was just a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Oh, they brought out a pretty boy for me. All right, let's do this. And the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? You've got a staff in your hand. I've got a sword and a spear. You're coming at me like I'm a dog. You're just going to like shoo me around with your little stick. And the Philistine cursed David by his own gods. The Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said back to the Philistine, man, he didn't say man. Um, <clears throat> he said, he said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. That's not enough. I come to you. He's not referencing his weapon, which would be a slingshot. He says, I come to you. This is because the true power is not in his slingshot. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel the one whom you've spoken of and cursed. This day, David continues, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'm gonna feed not just your body, I'm gonna feed the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air that you just talked about, to the wild beasts of the earth that you just made reference to, so that all the earth may know that there is in fact contrary to what you say, a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came near, drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, eager, ready, and David put his hand in his bag and he takes out a stone and he, he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword that David had in his hand, remember? So he runs and he, he takes Goliath's sword and he drew it out of the sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines and plundered their camp. What a victory. People comment on David grabbing five rocks. Some people think it's because Goliath had four brothers and he was just going to take them all out one at a time. I don't know. But they certainly were plundered. And this happened. This was recorded in history. And there's some traditional views of understanding this, this biblical story. And these are some sermon titles that I came across in studying for this. 
Um, don't be encouraged by these. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> how to kill a giant uh, when the armor doesn't fit. Five smooth stones, how to lead with what you have. Conquering your giants. Be you and use what you have. Don't be somebody else. Be like David. Face your fears. What's your Goliath? In all these, we picture ourselves as David. This is not reading the Old Testament through the grand story of redemption. This is reducing the beautiful scriptures of God's glorious gospel message. It's reducing it down to mere moralism and judgmental legalism. Do these things. Don't do these things. Do these things in this way. This is making the Bible simply a book of rules to live by. A bunch of do's and a bunch of don'ts. Scared, anxious, afraid, unknowing what to do, facing the giant of failure, well then be courageous. Grab what you have and add on some bravery and tackle your Goliath. You see, reading the Bible is primarily about you. This often takes you to a place of viewing whatever your struggle is as your Goliath. For instance, we face the Goliath of financial debt. We face the Goliath of fear. We face the Goliath of body image. We face the Goliath of a difficult marriage. We face the Goliath of, and then whatever your go-to sin is. We face the Goliath of raising our kids. We tend to think of ourselves of like, I'm David, this is Goliath. I need to go get my strategy, my five stones, and I'm going to courageously go face this fool. And I'm going to dominate. Just like David. But the problem comes, what if you fail? Like, what if you miss Goliath with your slingshot? Or what if you hit Goliath all five times in his forehead and he's still charging at you? What do you do? Where do you go? Who do you point to as why this didn't work out? You crush yourself. You failed. You must have done something wrong again. And so then despair, disappointment. I mean, you gave it your all. You gave everything you had and you didn't slay the giant. And because of this, you know what happens to our Goliath? It gets bigger. It gets scarier. It becomes more and more impossible. Enters guilt. Envy, comparison, shame, regret, anxiety, frustration, doubts. If we handle ourselves this way in our thinking about how we understand the Old Testament in particular, if we're not careful, we'll end up thinking, the Bible's bogus. I tried, I gave it my all, and God didn't show up like he did with David. He didn't show up like he did with Daniel. God must not care about me. At least he doesn't care about me as much as he does other people. You see the danger when trying to do everything like David and yet it doesn't work. Do you see how slippery of a slope this can be? Like we can isolate, we, 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 we cannot isolate this story from the flow and trajectory of redemptive history. David is not a hero. David is not a hero whose courage we should imitate in fighting our individual Goliaths. 
That's not the point. Read it through the whole of redemption story. If I'm David, then God will bless me. That's not the takeaway from this story. That's the complete opposite of this story. And yet that gets preached so many times. The, this is mainly a picture of Jesus against sin and death. And if you want to read yourself into the story, don't look at David. Look at Goliath and his team. According to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you're on Goliath's team. And you're unaware of it. And you think you're doing good. At, at, at that, that's at our, probably our best, is we're on his team and we don't know it. Or at our worst, rather. The best, if we're going to read ourselves into the best case scenario, we're Israel off to the corner, afraid to fight, not knowing what to do, getting defeated every single day. But then Jesus comes on the scene. He destroys our enemy of sin and death. He rescues us to be with him and his father in paradise forever. And now our hearts are free to worship Jesus and celebrate the salvation that he's earned for us. And now it's not on us to overcome the giant. Now we have a true champion who's able to overcome the giant for us. That's the gospel. The Lord defeats the enemy of his people for them. The curse of Genesis 3 has been reversed. God doesn't send us cowards an example. That doesn't help us. He sends us cowards a savior, a redeemer. Give me a man, we're told. Give me a man, but we're incapable of being that man. We're incapable of producing a strong enough man, a brave enough man to conquer our true Goliath of sin and death. You see, this is representative fighting in these days. He wasn't just fighting for them. He was fighting as them. If he wins, they win. If he loses, they lose. His victory is imputed or credited to the cowards. This is the gospel. I mean, this is the big idea. This is the point. David, as the Lord's anointed, is a shadow, is a type of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who meets and conquers Satan, the strong man, so that he might deliver those who are Satan's captives, so that we can then be set free those, he can set free those who have been bound by sin and death and fear and shame. The gospel, in fact, says we're not David. Jesus is the greater David. We're not the greater David. We're the scared brothers who tremble and who hide in fear of sin and death. And at best, maybe out of deep insecurity, we're skeptical of hope, much like the brothers. What are you doing here? And we make fun of our Redeemer. Ridicule our Redeemer, which happened to Jesus. Consider with me these comparisons of David and the greater David being Jesus. And there's a few of them. There's many of them. I'm just going to list a few. You see, David's victory over Goliath is a picture in advance of the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us on the cross and his resurrection. David was despised and rejected by those he was trying to save. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus was despised and rejected, even crucified by those he was trying to save. David represented his people. Jesus represents his people. Jesus, in fact, was brave for you, as you, and now you get the benefits of his courage and his victory. David was sent to the battlefield by his dad. Jesus was sent to the battlefield by his dad. David went vulnerably into the valley 
to fight for his people. Jesus went vulnerably into the ultimate valley of death for his people so that we, according to David, would only experience the shadow of death as we walk that valley. David crushed the head of the enemy. Jesus crushed the head of the enemy as promised in Genesis chapter three. David removed the condemning enemy that stood against the children of Israel. Jesus removes the condemning enemy that stands against his children. David killed his enemy with his own weapon, the sword of Goliath. Jesus killed our enemy with our enemy's own weapon. Death was killed with his death. Saul says to David, go and God be with you. Jesus tells you, go, and I am with you. David would receive a princess and money for his victory. Jesus receives the bride of Christ, the church, and gives us the glorious inheritance of heaven through his ultimate victory. My ask of you today is that you begin reading the Bible and that you begin reading the whole Bible and that you read it from beginning to end. I encourage you to read the Bible all the way through meticulously and repetitively for the rest of your lives so that we each can begin to see the, the Christ central thread, the Christocentric thread that's woven throughout all of scripture. The more that we read, the more that we study, the easier it will be to see Christ in all of Scripture and worship him for it. It's beautiful. But you know, I know that we all, we all desperately want to read ourselves as the hero. As we look at Joseph next week, we all want to be the one who fights through persecution and doesn't offer revenge, but instead offers grace. We want to always be the one who's that David slaying our giant. But here's what I ask of you. I'm asking that you stop trying to dig deep to be courageous and brave, to work hard to defeat your Goliath. And accept the fact that we're all cowards. That we're all helpless, hopeless, and incapable. And then point to the brave one. Point to the courageous one. The one who saves the true hero who conquers. And for my friends who don't know Jesus yet, you don't follow Jesus yet, man, sin is unbeatable. That's the true Goliath. Your sin is unbeatable. Your sin goes to your core and you can't help it. You can't help but sin. And the reproach of God is heavily upon you. His absence is felt by you. And I know you can't deny it. You might not put these words to it, but you know there's something off somewhere within you and you can't seem to shake it. There's a void within you and you can't seem to fill it. There's a noise that you just can't get rid of. There's something not quite right and you can't figure it out. You can't rid yourself of this problem. And it's so frustrating. My friend, if that's you, that is undoubtedly God at work in your life. It's God proving to you over and over and over again that it's only he who can save. Everything else will frustrate you, leave you more empty, leave you more discouraged, leave you more despairing. It's like facing Goliath over and over, 40 days, 40 days, 40 days, being destroyed and mocked and ridiculed. See that it is the Lord who is active in removing these things that you think could save you 
And though it be frustrating, see it as his grace that's there guiding you to who he is. He's working to get you to look up to who he is, to reach outside of yourself, to reach outside of your resources. You cannot figure this out alone. But Jesus, the warrior, has come to handle it for you. Sin is massive. It's scary. It's intimidating. It's heavy. It's full of guilt and shame. And you've tried and you've tried. And you're trying to attack sin, control sin, and run from sin, and better yourself so that you don't sin as much. But my weary friend, there's already been a standoff against sin. And it's not your battle to try to win. You simply trust in Jesus Christ as the one who defeated it, and you inherit his victory forever. And so believe Jesus and be made a Christian today. Believe Jesus and experience relief today. And it's not up to you. Jesus did it for you, and you simply trust him, and his victory is imputed to you. You receive what he earned. He receives your sin upon himself, which is what you earned. He received God's judgment, which is what you earned. And you get his blessing. You get life. To those who are Christians, those who believe and follow Jesus, be reminded that you don't have to be the hero. Jesus being the hero is good news. And I know we quickly forget that Jesus took care of all this. We often forget that his victory was one for us, and we drift to experience shame because of our Goliath still taunting us. But hear Jesus from the cross when he says to Telestai, it is finished, it is fully accomplished already. Christian, it really is finished. Continue fighting to believe that the fight is over and yield yourself to Christ. Surrender to him and be encouraged that the spirit, the spirit that was upon David that rushed upon David, the spirit that was in Jesus Christ, the spirit that was, in fact, Jesus Christ, indwells in you. His power is in you. Not to rush upon you and then to leave you, much like he did in the Old Testament, but the pattern of the New Testament is he comes and dwells within us. He tabernacles within his people, never to leave us, always to stay there rushing upon us. Not by might, not by power, By your spirit, says the Lord. Rejoice in this. Rejoice in this. Jesus has won. And ask God for the needed faith and understanding to believe this good news more and more and have it move from theological theory to practical encouragement. Like to where things that we know become things that we feel and experience. Ask God to build a bridge here between the things that we hear and the things that we actually believe in how we actually carry out our lives in obedience. Each week we get the opportunity to celebrate this great victory over the true Goliath of sin and death as we observe communion. You see, our hope of salvation comes from the grace and the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And this is what we remember each week as we take the bread and the juice of the wine. We remember. In fact, more and more, I believe the Christian life is, is all about remembering. And yet we're so forgetful. So this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, remember the grace of God that's seen in your rescue of the greater David facing off against something you could not take care of. 
Remember the faithfulness of God as you freely confess and repent your sins this morning. Remember the steadfast love of God as you look to the cross where you see Jesus fighting to bring you into his heart, suffering to bring you into his home, working hard to bring you into his family. This is what we think on as we come to the Lord's table this morning. We're going to have servers on either side of the stage area, and we've got self-serve stations in the back two corners. We're going to have bread, which is symbolic of the life that Christ lived as your representative. We've got juice or wine, symbolic of the death of Christ as he suffered as your substitute. Representative in life, substitute in death. So as you come and take and dip and taste, remind yourself of Jesus facing off against an enemy that we could never defeat and him defeating them as us and for us. To him be praised. Let's pray together. These are the gifts of God for the people of God, and we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has come, he's lived, he's died, and he will come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion, this time of remembering, this time of worshiping, and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, I invite you to come.